and everything we are. May you use it, help yourself to our lives to advance your kingdom cause. And I ask right now, Holy Spirit, that you would anoint this time, that you would open your word. This is living and active, this scripture. This is not some tomb that was written thousands of years ago that has very little bearing on our lives. This is your word, your spirit breathed. And I ask right now that you would bring it to bear on our lives, shape us and mold us so that we can be agents of your kingdom. Jesus, in your name, amen. All right. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 6. We're going to dive in because we've got a lot to do today. <clears throat> For those of you who have been uh, maybe missed a week or maybe you just want to refresh her, we have been in the book of Acts for the last month and a half or so, and we're slowly working through the birth of the church. And Acts begins with, after Jesus' resurrection, he reveals himself as, to his disciples and he says, Hey guys, listen, you are going to continue the work that I began. I'm going to the Father to prepare a place for you, but I want you to continue the work that I began. You're going to be my witnesses. And the word in Greek is martyros, from which we get the word martyr. You're going to be my martyrs, my witnesses, here in Jerusalem, then ultimately in Judea and Samaria, and then finally all the way to the ends of the earth. You're going to be my witnesses. You're going to advance my gospel message. But wait, you're not ready to do it yet. I want you to wait here in Jerusalem until my spirit comes upon you and it'll empower you to be my witnesses. Then you're going to go. Well, sure enough, when 10 days later, when the, the spirit of God comes on the day of Pentecost, these disciples who hitherto had been kind of hidden in an upper room, terrified that those Jewish leaders that had basically clamored for Jesus to be crucified. They were afraid that the Jewish leaders would do the same to them. All of a sudden, these guys and women are filled with the Holy Spirit and they run out into the streets and they begin to proclaim the gospel message, not just in their own language, in Hebrew or Aramaic. They begin to proclaim it in Greek, in other languages, from all of the people that are in Jerusalem to worship on that day of Pentecost. And thousands of people give their hearts to Jesus Christ on that day alone. The church goes from a church of about 120 to a church of over 3,000. And the Holy Spirit continues to do this work. He continues to give them the ability to do miraculous signs like healing a, a guy who had been crippled from birth. And that then gives them the opportunity to spread the gospel message. And more and more people are filling the church. But the growth of the church is not without its growing pains because there were a lot of people who were very... Uh, opposed to this gospel message. Most importantly, the Jewish leaders who had been the ones to say Jesus needs to be silenced. Now they're looking at these disciples going, these guys need to be silenced. And, and, and like Peter and John, who typically are the ones who are, are speaking to the Sanhedrin, which is the ruling party. They're like, guys, listen, we can listen to God or to you. Which do you think we should do? Tell you what we're going to do. We're going to listen to God, not to you. You be the judges if that's the right call. And twice they're brought before the Sanhedrin. But there are other growing pains going on in the church as well. Because Jerusalem is the center of Jewish politics. It's the center of Jewish worship. The temple was there. And so Jews from all over the world, because remember, throughout Jewish history, there had been seasons where God scattered them to the winds, almost like a dandelion that's being blown, right? They just scattered out into Egypt and up into Greece and towards Italy. And they're all over the place. And from time to time, these Jews would come back to Jerusalem to worship and they would say, you know what? I want to live here. 
But the problem is they had grown up in different countries. They'd grown up in Egypt. They'd grown up uh, in Asia and Italy, in places where Hebrew was not the primary language spoken. They spoke Greek instead of Hebrew because they were Hellenized, which is uh, just a big term for, you know, when all of those states were conquered by Alexander the Great. And he said, I want everybody to be on the same page. So regardless of the fact that I've just crossed a whole bunch of territories, I'm going to make everybody speak Greek. I'm going to bring Greek culture to bear. And this ultimately became the norm for most of the region around Jerusalem and around Judea. But the Jewish people retain their language. So here's what's going on in the early church. And I know that this feels like, well, what are you talking about? What does this have to do with it? It'll make sense in just a moment. What's gone on is you've got Jews who have moved back into Jerusalem. But they've been Hellenized, so they speak Greek. Then you've got Jews who have grown up in the shadow of the temple. They speak Hebrew or Aramaic. And what happened was very similar to what happens here when we have our brothers and sisters in Christ who move up here from Mexico or move in here from Korea or some other place where you speak a different language and you have a different culture. Although we may have the same Father in heaven, although we may believe the same things, we speak different languages, we have different cultural differences, and so we tend to isolate around people who are just like us. Thankfully, we're, we, we're pretty vanilla as a church, but thankfully we're becoming more French vanilla. We've got some speckles in here, and I'm hoping that we continue to go in that direction, right? But we tend to congregate, and then there are people over in the west side coast of Mesa who look very different from us, who are worshiping the same God. And there are people, you know, in Irvine who are worshiping the same God, but they worship perhaps in a different language altogether. And you see that this happens. Well, this is one of the growing pains that was going on There is a point for me doing this, guys. Um, In in Acts chapter 6, we see that that very thing, the cultural language differences, was an impediment to the church ministering to itself. So we read that in those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews, those Jews who had grown up outside of Judea, who spoke Greek rather than Hebrew or Aramaic, the, the Hellenistic Jews amongst them complained against the Hebraic Jews, those who, spoke Jew, or those who spoke Hebrew, because the widows of the Hellenistic Jews were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Now, obviously, some time has passed because the church has already gotten its act in gear. They've already started collecting stuff and already started taking care of people. There's already the, a system going on. So this isn't like days after Jesus has given the Holy Spirit. This is probably months, if not even years that the the work of the Spirit has been going on. I'm saying this is probably a couple months in. And the Hellenistic Jews are, are, are complaining because, hey, you're forgetting about our widows. You're forgetting about our needy in your midst. You're just focused on the needy in your own little synagogues. So the 12 disciples gathered all of the disciples together and they said, listen, guys, it wouldn't be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables. We've got a lot of things to do and there's a lot of needs here. So I tell you what, Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from amongst you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom, and we will turn this responsibility over to them, and then we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word of God. This proposal pleased the whole group, so they went away, and this group of Hellenistic Jews chose... That they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, who was a convert to Judaism. All seven of those names are Greek names, which means that all seven of those individuals more than likely were 
Hellenized. They probably spoke Greek. They were probably culled from the very group of people that they were, they were saying, we need these people to not be forgotten about. And so they pulled these seven guys who were from that culture, spoke that language, and they say, these are our guys that we feel fit the bill. They are, they are filled with the Holy Spirit. They're men who, who are you know, above reproach. So they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them and basically commissioned them to the task of caring for this group of disciples. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem continued to increase rapidly. And even a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now we're going to focus on one of those seven guys who have pulled aside and said, you have a role in this church. His name is Stephen. Now, Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs amongst the people. This is the first person, by the way, that we read about that is not an apostle that is actually doing signs and wonders, works of the Holy Spirit in order to help kind of affirm that God is with him and that the things that he is doing are spirit led. However, opposition arose from the members of the synagogue of freedmen, as it was called Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the province of Cilicia and Asia. These are all places that were outside of the boundaries of Jerusalem. Can we throw that map up there for a moment? I totally forgot my laser pointer, so this isn't going to really do anything. Um, but Cyrene and Alexandria are down in the Egyptian coast, so down on the bottom of that big blue blob on the left side, which is um, whatever, the Mediterranean Sea. And then, <laughs> whatever, right? Um, and then you've got, you got Asia and Cilicia up on the top, more up towards the top of the Mediterranean Sea. So we're seeing that these people in the um, synagogue of the freedmen were actually also Hellenistic Jews, which makes sense, right? Because if Stephen and the rest of those guys were intentional about ministering to the Hellenized Jewish people, they're going to come into contact with those individuals in that community who are going to have a little bit of opposition. That's what's going on. Thank you. So opposition arose from these Jews from Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the province of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. They said, basically, this gospel message, we don't agree with it. And they began to refute it. They began to go back to the scriptures and say, this is why we don't think it's true. And then Stephen would respond and he would show from scripture. He would support the argument that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah, God's anointed redeemer. Verse 10, however, they could not stand up against the wisdom that the Spirit gave Stephen as he spoke. So although they tried to shut him down and refute the gospel message, they were unable to do so. And so if you can't beat him fairly, cheat, right? It's at least that has worked for the, the New York Giant or the New York Met. Whatever, you know, the teams from New York and uh, the Patriots. No, no, stop. Oh, I'm getting don't don't go there. OK, moving on. All right. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we've heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. Again, the ruling Jewish group. These are the ones who were in charge of the temple. These were the ones who were in charge of making decisions for all of the Jews in Jerusalem. They seized Stephen and brought them before the Sanhedrin, where they produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stops speaking against the holy place and against the law. The holy place meaning the temple and against the law of Moses. 
For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, meaning the temple, and and change the customs Moses handed down to us. Now, do you remember a time when Jesus said that he was going to destroy the temple? In fact, he did. Jesus was talking with, there's a time, and you don't have to turn here, but in John chapter 2 and in all of the other gospels, there's this interaction that takes place where Jesus walks into the temple and he sees a whole bunch of people exchanging money. And they see a whole bunch of people selling cattle and donkeys and, and even doves that were going to be used to sacrifice in temple worship. And these guys were making a profit off of it. And Jesus was so incensed that they had turned the temple into a marketplace that he begins to go in and clean it out. He makes a whip and begins to kind of drive the cattle out. And he says to the, the people who are selling doves, you get these birds out of here. I'm going to start throwing these things. And he starts upturning the, the money changers tables and money scattered everywhere. And the Jews said, excuse me. But what gives you the right to come in here and start doing this? Show us a sign that you have the authority to do this. And Jesus said, you want a sign? Fine. Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. Now they're thinking he's talking about the temple that they're residing in. But let's remember what the temple was. The temple was simply a meeting place for the people to come face to face with their God. The temple was a permanent structure that reflected what God had given to the Israelites when they were wandering through the wilderness. He had them build a tabernacle, which is just a tent. It was called the tent of meeting. And that was the place as they were wandering through the wilderness that, that Moses and the leaders of the people could come and meet face to face with God. And it was a tangible reminder when that tent was set up and then all of the tribes that were wandering through the wilderness would pitch their tents around in a circle around the tent, it was a reminder that their God was in their midst, that they were not a people that was alone in the wilderness. And when they finally came into the promised land that God promised them, David goes, I want to build a temple for you. I want to build a permanent structure so we don't have to have the Ark of the Covenant in some tent. And God goes, your son's going to do it. And ultimately Solomon built this temple. But the people had turned that temple They put the focus on the temple. It had almost become an idol. And Jesus said, listen, you you tear this temple down in three days. I'll raise it up because he was talking about himself. Because what was Jesus, if not the physical embodiment of the temple? God residing in our midst, right? So he goes, "You, you tear this temple down. I'll raise it up in three days, which is exactly what happened when Jesus rose from the dead on the third day of Easter. So. They produce false witnesses who testify this fellow never stops speaking against the holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. How would he change it? Because he would take the focus off of the law, which the Jews had turned into a ladder that you try to climb into righteousness. And he had turned it into a law of grace. It is by grace you are saved, by faith, not by works that nobody can boast. So all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently to Stephen to see how he would respond to these accusations. But when they looked at him, they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. I've read that and I'm like, what does that have to do with anything? Oh, he's really cute. He's cherubic. (laughs) We're missing here a reference to the Old Testament. Do you remember when Moses went up onto the mountain to meet with God at Mount Sinai? God gave him the Ten Commandments and when he walked down the mountain, what did it say that his face was doing? Glowing. Because he had been in God's presence, so his face glowed like an angel's. This is a reference here. I think that what, what Luke is suggesting is that Stephen was so 
just steeped in God's presence. The Holy Spirit was so palpably there with him that his face was shiny. I don't know if it was literally or if it did. He just looked at it and just went, there's something about this guy. But when they look at him, they could see there was something different. So we get into chapter 7. Guys, we have a lot to cover today, so I'm just going to charge through this. The high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? To which Stephen is going to respond. This is the longest recorded uh, speech in all of Acts. And Stephen is going to refute the two charges that have been brought against him. One, that he is against the temple. And secondly, that he is against Moses and against the law. Now, we're going to read this. And at first, you're going to think, what on earth does this have to do with anything? But let's keep in mind that Stephen is speaking his audience's language, and his audience is the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is a group of Jewish men who were the keepers of the history, the keepers of Jewish tradition, and they celebrated this rich history of Jews, Judaism. And so Stephen is going to begin with a history lesson that's going to seem off topic, but he is going to be building a case that he, in fact, is not guilty of these accusations. And if anybody is guilty, it's the Jews themselves that are accusing him. So let's dive in. I'm just going to charge through this. So he replied to them, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land that I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. And after the death of Moses' father, God sent him to the land where you are now living, the land of Israel. He gave him no inheritance here, not even enough ground to set his foot upon. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no children. God spoke to him in this way. For 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. They will be enslaved and mistreated. But I will punish the nation that they serve as slaves, God said. And afterwards, I will bring them out into this country that you are now standing in, and they will worship me in this place. And then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision, a sign in the flesh that they are set apart as God's people. And Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, whose name was later changed to Israel, one who wrestles with God. And Jacob became the father of 12 sons, who became the 12 patriarchs of 12 tribes from which we get the 12 tribes of Israel. Because these patriarchs were jealous of their brother Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with Joseph and rescued him from all of his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And so Pharaoh made Joseph ruler over all of Egypt and all of his palace. And then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing a great suffering. And our ancestors couldn't find food. So when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our forefathers, the other 11 sons, out to visit. And on their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and the whole family, some 75 in all, ended up moving to Egypt. Then Jacob went down to Egypt where he and our ancestors died. Their bodies were there. They were ultimately brought back into the land. And they're now in Hamor and Shechem um, where Abraham bought a plot of land. Verse 17. At this, as the time drew near for, for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, what promise was that? The promise that for 400 years you will be enslaved in Egypt, but then I will bring you out 
and I will bring you back into the land and you will worship me here. So as the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt had greatly increased. Then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our ancestors by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. Why? Because the Israelites were, were multiplying so quickly that this Pharaoh recognized that these people who they had enslaved could very quickly overwhelm them and become more powerful even than Egypt, the Egyptians themselves. So they said, let's cut the head off the snake. Let's stop their growth by killing the male children so that they don't get more powerful than us. Well, at that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for by his family. They hid him under penalty of death if they had been found out. But then after three months, he was placed in a wicker basket, put in the river, and they let him float down, and Pharaoh's daughter ultimately found him. And she took him and brought him up as her own son. Verse 22. Moses was educated in all of the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. Well, when Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people. I always thought Moses was a lot younger when this happened. Apparently he was 40. He went to visit his own people, the Israelites, and he saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian. So he went up to this Egyptian's defense and he avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they didn't. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them, saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me like you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses realized that the people had seen this. He knew that the word would get back to Pharaoh. He knew his life was in danger. And so Moses fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner. He married. He had two sons. He began to tend sheep. Well, after 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of the burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. He was 40 when he killed the Egyptian. He was 40 more years in the wilderness, which means he's 80 years old when God called him to go and lead the people out of captivity in, in Egypt, which means for those of you who have retired, God's not necessarily done with you yet. There is still hope for you. So after 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of the burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight and he went over to get a closer look. And he heard the Lord say, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. <laughs> Naturally, Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. And then the Lord told him, take off your sandals for the place upon which you are standing is holy ground. And I have indeed seen the opposition of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and I have come down to set them free. So now come, I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses that they had rejected. The same Moses that the Israelites had rejected with the words, who made you ruler and judge? But God sent him to be their ruler and deliver them by God through the angel who appeared to Moses in a bush. So Moses led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt, in the Red Sea, and for 40 years in the wilderness. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will one day raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. 
He was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors. And he received living words to pass on to us, the Decalogue, those Ten Commandments and other things from God that he was to bring to the people. Remember, this is the Moses who the Israelite Sanhedrin is saying, you know, Stephen, you're against Moses and against his law. And so Stephen reminds them, first off, you Israelites, you rejected him the first time when he was trying to protect the the Israelites from the Egyptian. And they rejected him once. And now we're going to see that the Israelites rejected him a second time. Because Moses was up on Mount Sinai for some 40 days meeting face to face with God. And when our ancestors and our ancestors refused to obey him, this is verse 39. Our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him again. And in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt, back to slavery. They told Aaron, Moses' brother, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't even know what's happened to him. He's been gone too long. So bring somebody else. Give us something else to worship. Here, we'll give you gold. Make an idol for us. Verse 41, that was the time that they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and they reveled in what their own hands had made. God's people set apart to be his representatives, turned to idolatry, turned to something they could control because they couldn't control a God that could shake a mountain. They couldn't control a God that could strike a person dead. And they didn't trust God. They trusted the work of their own hands. Verse 42, But God turned away from them and gave them over to the worship of the sun, the moon, and the stars. This agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings for 40 years in the wilderness, people of Israel? You have taken up the tabernacle of Moloch, which is one of these pagan deities. And you've taken up the star of your god, Rephan, the idols that you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. What is Stephen saying here? Why is he spending all of this time talking about the history of the people of Israel? He's doing it because they have been, he has been accused of two things. And one of those things is that he is against Moses, that he's against the law, that he is rejecting. And he's going, guys, look at your own history. We as Israelites have a tendency to reject the people of God. God sent Moses and he was rejected by his own people, not once, but twice. And then you say that I'm I'm guilty of rejecting the temple, that I want to destroy it. Well, let's talk about the temple for a second. Our ancestors, verse 44, our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness, this tent of meeting. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. And after receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon, his son, who built a house for him, this house in which we are standing right now, that temple place. However, verse 48, however, the most high does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet Isaiah said, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hands made all of these things? I think what the Israelites had unwittingly done is they had turned the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who had led them out of captivity, the God who created everything, they turned him 
into a similar God to the kind of gods that all of the nations around them worshipped. You see, the nations around them tended to worship gods like Moloch and Refin, which were regional gods, meaning the god was tied. In their mind, when you go into a place, there is a god that presides over this place, and it has power in this particular area. And so long as we're there, that God is in control. But if we go somewhere else, there's a different God who would be in control. This was a pagan philosophy. And what the people of Israel had done is in building the temple, they'd unwittingly said, this is where God resides. This is where God is powerful. If we want to tap into the power of Yahweh, we have to come to the temple. But look at their history. Where had God God met Abraham? In Mesopotamia, way away from Israel. And then he had led him to Haran. And then he took him into Canaan, which is where the the Israelites were currently at. Then he took him to Egypt, where he did some powerful things. Then he brought him back into the promised land. Do you see that the God you are worshiping, Israel, is not a regional deity tied to the land? He is the creator of everything. His power transcends boundaries. So don't think that this building can contain our God. Don't think that this building is the only place that we can come to meet our God. Perhaps we need to recognize that this building, Lighthouse Church, is not the only place that we can meet our God. And in reality, because the Holy Spirit has been imparted to us, we become temples. We become tabernacles of the Holy Spirit. We bring our God's Spirit with us everywhere we go. So we can do church at Panera Bread. We can do church in our our living rooms. We can do church... Down at the park, we get to be his representatives everywhere we go because we are living tabernacles of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, moving on. Stephen is still attacking and he is now going to up the ante. He is now going to point straight at the Israelites. And if they haven't been picking up on the nuances of it, he is now going to come straight out and tell them the things that you accuse me of, you are guilty of. You stiff-necked people, which is always a great way to start a sentence when you're talking to the very people who killed your rabbi, right? You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised, which is kind of a, a slap in the face to an Israelite who identified themselves by their circumcision. This marks us as men of God. And he's saying your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors didn't persecute? You even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, God's anointed redeemer, his Messiah. You killed him. And what's more? And now you have betrayed and murdered him, the Messiah, God's anointed redeemer. You have done exactly what your forefathers did. So as much as they were guilty of rejecting God's Anointed people, you have done the same thing. You who have received the law that was given through angels have not obeyed it. So don't look at me and say that I don't have respect the temple, that I don't respect Moses. You are guilty of the very things you are accusing me of. Naturally, they were unhappy about Stephen's speech. So when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, so the Spirit of God is upon him. Remember how 
Jesus even said, don't be afraid what you will say to the people, because on those days when you stand before the rulers, I will give you the words to say through my Holy Spirit. The Spirit is giving words to Stephen. And look, listen to what he says. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God in that position of authority and leadership. And he said, look, I see heaven open and the son of man, which is a term Jesus used to refer to himself, which is a term also that's found in the prophet Daniel. I see one like the son of man standing at the right hand of God. Well, that was enough. That was the straw that broke the camel's back. They would listen to no more because he's now saying Jesus is in the throne room of heaven, worshiping with God. Done. So that this they covered their ears and they yelled at the top of their voices so that they wouldn't have to listen to another word coming out of Stephen's mouth. And they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, threw him over the nine foot cliff down to the bottom and began to pile rocks on top of him, ultimately stoning him to death. Meanwhile, I'm sorry, as they, um, yeah, so they, they began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses that were there watching laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul, who was a young up-and-coming student of the rabbi Gamaliel. He was a Pharisee who was presiding over the stoning and giving his approval to it. While they were stoning Stephen, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He probably didn't say it as calmly as I just said it because he was probably being pelted. Then he fell to his knees and cried out, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. Then he breathed his last breath, fell asleep, which is a euphemism for dying. Now, those two things he says, Lord, into your hands I commit my spirit, and please don't hold this against them. Sound pretty familiar, don't they? Because they sound exactly what Jesus had said on the cross before he died during his crucifixion. Stephen was a man filled with the Holy Spirit, and even to the end, he reflected the heart of his rabbi Jesus. And Saul was there approving of the killing of Stephen. Let's just read a couple more verses. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except for the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul, he began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Is that a good book, Mary? (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) Way more interesting than this. That's awesome. So, you, you know what this reminds me of? And this is totally kind of sideways. But you guys remember um, the second installment of the Star Wars trilogy, The Empire Strikes Back? You know how the, at the very ending, you basically feel like everything that has been building has fallen apart. You've got Luke Skywalker's just had his arm or his hand cut off by his dad. And now he's like, what's going to happen? And you've got Han Solo encased in carbonite. And you're like... And now I have to wait until I didn't actually have to wait because I wasn't even cognizant of these movies when they first came out. But it's like, no, that's the ending. That can't be the ending. And that's what it feels like here. The story ends with Saul going around from house to house, finding the church and imprisoning people who are, are followers of the way and of all of the disciples being scattered. And it feels like the end. It feels in a lot of ways like God is losing the battle. I'm going to read one more verse before we wrap up our reading of Scripture and we just pull out a couple of things. Look at verse 4. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. 
Do you remember the very first thing that Jesus said to his disciples? Or one of the last things he said before he he was raised into heaven? He said, listen, guys, I want you to wait in Jerusalem until my spirit comes upon you. And then, then once that happens, you will be my disciples, my witnesses, my martyrs in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And for a time, they were his witnesses in Jerusalem. And it was comfortable. They were taking care of one another. There was an excitement. They, they, they had the favor of the people around them, at least most of them, except for the Jewish leaders. But they really were doing pretty well for a while there. And so, of course, what's the point of going to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth? But then all of a sudden... Stephen pushes the envelope a little too far and he's killed and persecution breaks out and it's like the pendulum swings and there's massive pushback in Jerusalem and everybody but the apostles are scattered like that dandelion into the wind. And yet as they go, they began to share the gospel message in Judea and Samaria and towards the ends of the earth. God uses that persecution to advance his kingdom cause. Now, I have to ask, did Stephen have to die? Couldn't God, who is God, who created everything, have figured out a different way to make his gospel advance? And I have to admit, absolutely, he's God. He can do anything he wants. But I will also point out that this is the same God who allowed his son his anointed redeemer, to be crucified at the hands of the Roman centurions. He didn't spare Jesus, and he doesn't spare Stephen, which I think is a pretty powerful testimony against a a certain theology that's floating around today called the prosperity gospel. There's a gospel out there that basically says that God wants you to be happy healthy and wealthy. He wants to bless you financially so that you can do so much more for the kingdom, but he wants you to be comfortable is ultimately the underlying philosophy. And I got to admit, the more and more I read of scripture, the more and more I am convinced that God is not all that concerned about our comfort. He's not all that concerned about us building up large estates in our name. True, there are some people who are blessed with wealth and there are some people who are blessed with a lot. In fact, if we were to look at ourselves through the lens of the rest of the world, we are all rich. But our comfort is not God's greatest priority, nor nor is it his purpose for us. Because scripture is pretty clear that God's purpose for us is to continue the work that Jesus began. God's purpose for us is to be his witnesses in the world as we go, sharing the good news and advancing his kingdom so that he is glorified and so that his children, who don't even recognize that they're his children, will come to know him. That's his purpose. And in order to embrace that purpose, time and again, his people who answered the call had to sacrifice their comfort, sometimes even sacrificing their lives. Jesus, in fact, warned his disciples, guys, listen, if they persecute me, they will persecute you also. We are not promised that we will avoid persecution. If anything, we're promised that if we follow Jesus, we will endure persecution. We will endure friends walking away from us because 
they just don't understand why we won't hang out and do the things that we used to do. We will endure people who will unfriend us on social media because we won't shut up about our love for Jesus. Now, I would not suggest that social media become the place that you spend trying to proselytize or trying to make political stands. It's not a good place. I haven't seen a whole lot of good come from that. That face-to-face, life-on-life is the place I have found that has the greatest bearing on transforming people because they get to see our lives. But even there, people will push us away because they quite honestly just don't want anything to do with a Jesus freak. But in this world, we will endure persecution because they persecuted Jesus. So, when you find people pushing you to arm's length, when you find people ridiculing you, don't ask, Jesus, why am I being persecuted? The question we should ask is, am I being persecuted? And if the answer is no, then the follow-up question is, why not? Why am I not being persecuted? Is it because I have been more conformed into the image of this world than I have into the image of my Lord? Is it because I have adopted so much of what society around me is doing, that I'm no different from any of them because they won't hate us if we don't look any different from them. But neither will they be convicted. Neither will our lives shine in the darkness and bring hope to people that there is a Lord that transforms lives. So we should be asking ourselves, am I being persecuted? And if the answer is no, then there is a problem. Of course, as somebody who's grown up in the church, in North America that claims to be a Christian nation, I haven't endured a whole lot of persecution. I've never been bloodied for my faith. Maybe some of you have. I haven't. And so for me, persecution feels pretty distant. But I have to tell you that persecution is alive and well in the world. Do you realize that in in the past century, in the, 2000, in, 19, in the 1900s, there were more people that were killed for their faith than in any previous century before that. But it's even bigger than that. In the last century, there were more people killed than in every other century before that combined. People are dying left and right. To which we have to ask, well, where is God in this? Has he failed? Is the church losing? And and in fact, what I have found is just the opposite. That where there is persecution, the church actually flourishes. There's a couple of second century authors that spoke to the the persecution that the church endured. This one guy, um, Diagenetto, can you you throw it up there? Um, this quote from Diagenetto, and I'm probably totally massacring his name, but he's pagan, so it doesn't matter. And he's not around. <laughs> Sorry, that, that was stupid. So he wrote this. Do you not see that Christians thrown to the wild beast do not allow themselves to be beaten, that they're not crushed, that they're not destroyed? Do you not see that the Christians thrown to the wild beast do not allow themselves to be beaten? Do you not see that the more that they're punished, the more others increase in numbers? Another guy, Tertullian, who was a Christian author writing around 197 AD, wrote, The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of martyrs dying for their faith is the very water that nourishes the growth of the church. 
Now, I wasn't around for this, but one of the most powerful examples of this is a guy named Jim Elliott, who in 1956, along with four other friends who were missionaries, flew into Ecuador to minister to this Huarian tribe. I'm totally massacring that name as well. But they flew to minister to this tribe that had been completely isolated. They went to share the gospel message. They landed, and for about three days, they began to interact with one or two people. And then one day, the tribe shows up, not with open hands, instead with spears. And they killed all five of those men before they ever had the opportunity to share the gospel message with them. For those of you who have seen the movie, The Tip of the Spear, that's about these guys' life and the aftermath of it. And we might think they were called by God to go minister, but where was God on this? Why would he allow this to happen? Why this waste of these five men who had wives and young, young children? Why would, they, why would he allow that to happen? But the story doesn't stop there. Their story was, was shared in churches and in even Life magazine did a, an article on it. And there was an explosion in the American church towards missions. People began to give financially. People began to, to volunteer. I will take these men's place. In fact, there was one magazine who did a, a survey and found over 600 people who specifically said those guys dying for their faith to try to reach these people was the impetus for me to get into missions, for me to go overseas. Over 600 people came from the death of these five men. We might say that's enough, but that wasn't it. Because two years after Jim Elliott and these other four guys died, Jim Elliott's wife and his young daughter and the sister of one of the other men and a group of people flew back to that same tribe in Ecuador, back to that same place where their husbands and brother and friends had died. And they began to reach out to these, this tribe. And this tribe was so taken aback by the fact that these women would come not for revenge, but rather to share and restore relationship, that they began to listen. They translated the Bible into their language. And the majority of that tribe gave its heart to Jesus, including many of the men who killed Jim Elliot and the rest of those missionaries. Their lives were not spent in vain. Because although they died in this life, they're living for eternity. And so are so many of those men, women, and children from that tribe that otherwise would have died in their sins. So the question isn't, why are we being persecuted? Nor is it even... I guess really the question is, does this mean that God is calling me to die in order to follow him? Does it mean it's going to cost me my life to say yes to Jesus? And my answer to that is yes. Not necessarily in the way that we think of dying. The invitation is to die to ourselves, to die to our flesh, to die to this belief that my life is for me and me alone to determine, that I'm the captain of my own ship. To lay down the control of our lives and say, Jesus, I want to follow you in everything that I do. I don't want to build my own kingdom. I want to build your kingdom. I don't want to make my own name great. I want to make your name great. I don't want to accumulate for myself. I want to simply allow you to use my life, use my gifts, use my stuff to bring about your purpose and your plans in my family's life, in my neighborhood, in my church, and beyond. That's the invitation. It is dying daily. In fact, there's a, a verse Jesus said, if you would come after me, can you 
Throw that verse up there. Okay, next one. I skipped that one. That was a good one, though. Jesus said this to his disciples. Whoever wants to be my disciple must, dis- must deny themselves or must die to themselves. Take up their cross and follow me. Because whoever would try to save their life will ultimately lose it. But whoever is willing to lose their life for me will gain it into eternity. That's the invitation. God is not all that concerned with our comfort. He's not all that concerned, honestly, with us accumulating and and having, you know, the American dream is not God's dream. God's dream is that we would be his ambassadors of hope and reconciliation in a world that is darkened by sin to his children that don't even know that he loves them and wants relationship with them, that we would get to be his martyrs, his witnesses in our spheres of influence. That's the invitation. And if it costs us our life, then so be it. If God needs to scatter this church and make us uncomfortable and get us, if he needs to take some of you and send you elsewhere, then I pray that we would have the courage to answer that call. If he needs to remove things from our life, including our health, in order to advance his purpose, then my my prayer is that we would be courageous enough to say, God, here I am, your will be done. So let's just pray that as we close up today. Father God, would you have your way with us? Would you glorify yourself in us? Our Father in heaven, holy be your name. May your kingdom come and may your will be done in Lighthouse Community Church and in Costa Mesa and in Huntington Beach and in Santa Ana, in Orange County, just as it is in heaven. Here we are. Help yourself to our lives to bring about your will, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Hey, guys, we're going to wrap up for today. Just a couple of reminders. On Wednesday is going to be our second night of prayer and worship. For those of you who were there last month, it was amazing, as you know. For those of you who weren't, don't miss it. It's going to be an awesome night of prayer and worship. Secondly, ladies, this Saturday is the women's brunch. It's the biggest gathering of our ladies, and it's going to be a really big deal this Saturday. This is your last opportunity to sign up for it. If you have not, go to the back table out there, and we'll make sure you do it. Gentlemen, The men's retreat is only like two weeks away, which I'm really excited about. Maybe it's three. I don't know. June 3rd through 5th. If you have not signed up, there's a few spots available, and I would love for you to be with us. John will be at the back table. Is there anything else I'm missing, Mike? We good? What? You're just pointing. Ken? Oh, yeah. And it's Ken's birthday, so make sure you pinch him on the way out. Thank you. All right. Love you guys. Have a wonderful week, and sign up for women's retreat or women's brunch, men's retreat. Goodbye. (laughs) 